everybody, this is Josh Shack, now Canadian immigration lawyer, CEO at Visto.ai, and host of the Canadian Immigration Pros podcast. I am very happy to be joined by Melissa Godmer. Melissa, thank you very much for coming on the show today. Thank you very much, Josh, for inviting me. I'm excited to jump in, Melissa. This is going to be a topic we haven't covered in depth yet with any of our guests which I think is an important one. Obviously, there's been a lot of news recently in the international student space, but a program that you spend a lot of time working on, I'm not going to do your introduction for you, but just to kind of preface the episode is the startup visa, which could be interesting to many people for many reasons. But anyways, I'm going to shut up for a second. Before we jump into our topic, why don't you just say a quick hello, introduce yourself, anything you know about your background that it might be important for people to know about. Good morning, everyone. So, or maybe good evening. So, my name is Melissa Gunmer. I am a regulated Canadian immigration consultant, owner of Gunmer Immigration Consultant. I have been in the immigration field for over seven years, focusing on business immigration. So, I do various pathways, but definitely the startup visa program remains one of my main focus. And it will definitely be one of my main focus for hopefully the next couple of years. Awesome. Melissa, can you tell us about how did you get into that? Because, I mean, we work, especially through Visto, we, you know, we provide software to plenty of immigration consultants and lawyers. And it's interesting to see that there's kind of a mix. I would say maybe half the firms are quite broad in the services they offer. And then, you know, half, maybe even less than half, kind of like niche down into one or two very specific types of visas, whether it be SUV, study permits, you know, LMIA, stuff like that. What I'd love to know first is, number one, how did you kind of get into the study, sorry, startup visa niche? And secondly, maybe if you can explain, maybe just briefly, like 30,000 foot view, what is the startup visa? And then obviously we're going to get into, you know, plenty more detail throughout the episode. Definitely. So for, for sure, when I started as an I was in immigration support in 2017, the program was almost, I would say, brand new because it became permanent in 2018. So when I actually started to be helping entrepreneurs and business owners through the start of visa, it was a kind of an options back then that was very suitable for them. So I started to work actually with this new organization that were helping at that time. And it just started from there because it is a suitable programs for entrepreneurs that wish to bring the innovative project here in Canada. So that brings me actually to what is the Startup Visa program. So it is an innovation program. Individuals, foreign nationals that wish to establish your own business here, that means that it would meet the innovation component, create jobs, and of course, being scalable at the international level. That would be the core components of the Startup Visa program. Right. And, and as well, can you talk a little bit about what stage or stages? Because I know, for example, you know, and, and what some people might be thinking is, oh, hey, I'm, you know, I'm in tech or I have a tech company or been thinking of a tech company. Maybe this could be an option for me as, as a pathway into Canada, or maybe there's temporary residence in Canada. They're struggling with PR, right? Express entry's gotten really hard. What stages might a startup have to be in to potentially qualify for the program? 
That's good questions. Uh, so when we look at the regulation of the startup visa program, there's no restriction first regarding the type of field that the business must be within and also the stage that the business must be at. But I would say with my experience through the startup visa program in the last couple of years, we do see that the project to be approved and to be actually approved by the designated organization most of the time, they need to have some sort of traction. And when we look, when we talk about traction, we are talking about market viability. We talk about MVP in place um, to make sure that the project is actually working somewhere else uh, in the world or maybe within Canada already. Uh, to being able to demonstrate that this project would be suitable in the long term in the Canadian market. Right. So if I came to you as a prospective client and I said, hey, I have an idea, I have really good tech background, I have this idea, but you know, maybe the MVP is halfway done, but we haven't tested it in any market. Would you say, sorry, this might not be a good fit or sorry, let's wait until you actually launch it somewhere? Like, is it even worth applying if you, in your opinion, obviously, if you don't have some of that market traction, like you mentioned? In my opinion, they would need to have at least some traction. So I would recommend them to wait a bit to have that project in place, to have their MVP completed and to make sure that we can have these strong, a strong case actually to be demonstrated to the designated organization for the letter of support and also to the eye of the RCC when they will analyze the file. They will see that that business is already in place. And of course, they need to have that experience as a founder also, which is not actually mentioned under the criteria of the Startup Visa program that the founders must have experience related to their field, but it is indirectly, of course, asked by the RCC that they need to have experience within the type of business that they wish to establish. It is actually mentioned more towards the work permit criteria that they must have experience, but it is not on the PR side. Interesting. Yeah, and, and I guess that kind of goes to like the not the validity, maybe like the genuineness, right? Like if you're coming from farming to tech, right? Unless it's like an ag tech product, then it would make sense that it probably doesn't seem too genuine of, of an attempt, right? And probably in the second half, we'll get into some of the shady business, as I like to say, that, you know, has or, or has not been happening in this industry. But let, let's talk about the designated organizations that you just alluded to, because this is an element that we don't see in too many other types of visas where I guess I guess an equivalent could be like if you're going to apply for a study permit, you first need an approval from a school in Canada. With the startup visa, you need, as you mentioned, a letter of support from a designated organization. Can you talk a little bit about what does that mean and, and what are these designated organizations? So when it comes to the startup visa program, one of the criteria that is listed on the government website is that they must have a letter of support as a group from the designated organization that could be either a business incubator, angel investor, or venture capital. So one of these three organizations must give them a letter of support that is actually vouching for the suitability of their project in Canada. 
And of course, their suitability under the startup visa program criteria that we mentioned earlier. So innovation, scalability, and of course, creating jobs. Innovation is a big part of it. So when they have that letter of support, it, they would meet the minimum requirement by RSEC. Got it. And can you give people an idea, like how many of them are? I, I know it's broken down into three that you kind of mentioned, right? So there's these biz, business incubators, angel groups, and venture funds. Are there a lot of them? How hard is it to get those those letters? And then probably... Well, at least the the most important question that I'm personally curious about is when you have a you're working with a with a startup, how do you pick, right? Because I think there's what maybe like thirty or forty of them total. I don't know. You can correct me if I'm wrong. I haven't checked the list in a while. There's something like thirty, forty total. This I believe more than that. I don't recall the exact numbers, but there are quite a numbers of business organizations listed on the government website. Business incubator would be, I would say, representing almost seventy to eighty percent of all business organizations. So hmm. when it comes to choosing the right business organization for, of course, getting that letter of support and being able to find a suitable organization for their project. Um, all design organizations have, I would say, different field of expertise first. So that would be a first component to look at. And second would be, is there the, kind of the nature of the business and the type of support that the design organization will be giving to the project? So do they need really more guidance? Do they need more support? What kind of support do they need when they're going to be lending in Canada or do their incubation to development while they wait to receive their PR? Those are all criteria to look at when choosing the right designated organization. And also it would be to look at the fees because the design organization will charge a certain amount of fees to help them through the development of their business. So do like, depending on the service, the fees might be high, might be lower, depending on the, of course, the guidance and can they choose to get also equity in the business when it comes to, I would say maturity of the time with the angel investors and venture capitals that would be taking on equity in the business because they will be investing either $75,000 when it comes to angel investors or 200,000 minimum for venture capital. So it depends on what the founders are looking at. Are they looking to keep 100% of the equity? So business incubator in this case would be more suitable. Are they looking for more additional funding and the initial start? So venture capital and angel investors would be a better fit. So it's a good review to do with them at the beginning of the process to really analyze their needs and their objectives. And being able to refer them to the right deal in this case. Right. And and it's definitely seemed to me like this is a pretty, I don't want to say complex in the terms of like, it's not rocket science, but certainly many steps and a lot of different factors at play, right? Pretty early on in this process, right? Like you said, based on the type of startup and what they need, if they don't need any cash, and in fact, if they have cash to spend, because that's what might be the case for these business incubators is you might have to spend tens of thousands of dollars just to take part in those programs. And, and maybe we'll talk in more detail what those numbers kind of look like, but in most mm -hmm. cases, they're not taking equity. 
And then the angel groups and the venture funds, they're actually investing money in you and you have to raise a minimum amount in order to actually call for the letter of support. What do you see in terms of proportion there, Melissa? Like are most of your clients going through business incubators or are most of them? I would imagine, I mean, my guess, I have no idea. My guess would be the majority are going through business incubators just knowing how hard it is to raise money in Canada. Is that what you see with your clients? So I would say it's it's a 50-50 under oh, wow. my clients right now that goes either to angel investors or business incubators because they all have different type of projects that they want to launch. So when it comes to the angel investors, I would say the projects that currently end will require more funding in the long term and more networking to, for example, the angel network to be able to get additional partnership, collaboration. The one that are in the incubator would be requiring a bit less. So in this case, it would be better for them at this point. But of course, later on, they could join a VC or angel investors when they become permanent resident, depending on where they are in their business model. So I think it differs within my clients. Yeah. Got it. And then let's say you do decide to go the business incubator route. How do you separate them? Because even within the incubators, I think there's what, like 15, 20 just business incubators. Are they kind of differentiated by industry or stage? How do you approach that with your clients? I would say the two main point of differentiation would be the industry and their support and the business. So they all have different type of structure to help the clients build their project, right? So they might have a 12 months, 15 months, 18 months incubation of the business. So it depends what the client need regarding their businesses and do they need a more guided pathway to be able to have a suitable and sustainable actually project in Canada because a lot of my clients are more mature entrepreneurs so they need less guidance regarding kind of the structure of their business they do need of course guidance within the Canadian market but they need less kind of structure than someone that would be having maybe just a couple of years of experience in this case right that makes a lot of sense so so let's say you're going the business incubator route what you you mentioned fees earlier what what's like an average or can you provide a range of like what it make like are any of the business incubators free if you get accepted and or what's the range of like what 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 people could expect if if they want to start applying to them that's a good question regarding the fees i i think i saw it once or twice that the business incubator was not charging any fees but they decided to took on equity and the business it's a very i would say it's a it's rare cases it does not happen very often but majority of the time business incubator will charge i would say between 30 to 50,000 per group depending on how they want to structure because they can be up to five under the same business project. So they might charge per person. Up to five founders. Per groom, yes. Up to five founders under the same business model. So it it will reduce the overall cost per person, but it will depend on the business incubator structure. 
but average 30 to 50,000 per group of five individuals would be a good average. Got it. So we have one startup company. It can include up to five founders. And the majority of business incubators will probably charge in the range of 20 to 30 to 50K. There right. might be a few that don't have a fee, but they're going to take something, right? Usually in the form of, of equity in, in that case. Okay. Can, can you give people an idea, Melissa, like how, how big is this program, right? Because like, for example, in a year, maybe not anymore because they just capped study permits, but like last few years, we're bringing in 500,000 international students. We're approving 500,000 new permanent residents. Canada, you know, brings in millions of visitors a year, or at least approves millions of temporary resident visas a year. But from my understanding, this is a very small program, understandably now knowing what the requirements are, because there's only so many, I'm assuming, tech companies and founders that meet these requirements. But what are we talking? Do you know the numbers? Like, are they approving 100 of these a year, 1,000 of these a year, 10,000 a year? That would be in the thousands. That is, of course, our goal. That was what was mentioned during the collision event over the summer by our former immigration minister, Mr. Fraser. They want to put an emphasis on having more and more entrepreneurs coming in under the Startup Visa program in the next few years because it is creating a lot of economic benefits to the country. And of course, we want to have these type of individuals starting businesses here to being able to sustain our economy and being able to create jobs. And these combination of factors might not actually, they will impact a lot of our economy, even if we don't have a big number of individuals coming in. People are already making a big difference with the projects that are currently being accepted under the Start a Visa program. Right. And it just kind of hit me that this is, I guess, included in, in, the, in the levels plan. So I pulled it up for 2024 to 2026. And it looks like in 2024, the target for what they're calling federal business, which includes the startup visa and the self-employed persons program, is 5,000 approvals. So I guess, I don't know if that's split like 50-50 between SUV and, and self-employed or whatever, right? Or maybe it's 75-25. I don't know, right? But it's definitely less than 5,000. And then 2025 goes up to 6,000. And then 2026, it stays frozen, which it looks like it looks like pretty much every number is staying frozen from 2025 to 2026, with the exception of French speakers, staying consistent at 6K. So definitely a smaller program, but as you mentioned, pretty, pretty outsized quote unquote returns, right? I mean, if you bring in a hundred, 500, a thousand new startup founders per year, and they're building these companies, they're getting funding, they're hiring people, they're selling products, they're expanding, maybe they're exporting, right? So it could be, could be huge benefits to, to the country as a whole. Where does this stand globally, Melissa? Like do a lot of other countries, especially that we typically quote unquote compete with in immigration, right? Like a lot of the other popular destinations, the US, the UK, Australia, do you know, like, do they have similar ish programs? Is Canada's pretty innovative? How are we like, do you talk to a lot of founders who are like, I'm going to use India as an example, because they're the, the biggest source of, of, you know, immigrants to Canada. 
if you talk to like some really successful founders in India and they want to expand, are they debating like, hey, maybe Canada, maybe the U.S.? Like, are they comparing different countries? Yes, of course. Everyone that is coming in right to Canada, the it's a it's a business program. So in this case, the goal is to make sure that they're making a business decision on where would be the most optimal location to expand or to establish their business, right? Uh, so they're going to be looking at the UK, the United States, maybe in Asia, depending on the type of businesses that they do. Canada always remains the main suitable options for them regarding mm. the market size that they can reach, what the U.S. being just our neighbors, it's very exponential what they can do with their business to expand here and to expand to Europe as well. So we are, I would say, one of the most startup visa program suitable options for them to establish their business and gain at the same time their permanent residence status. So if you look at pros and cons from around the world of what other countries are offering, I would say we are at the top of the list for these individuals. Hmm. I mean, it definitely does seem like the way they've designed it, at least, and we're, we're going to talk about maybe some of the flaws here in, in just a few minutes. But at its core, it seems like a pretty smart program. I was almost surprised to learn that many other countries don't have an equivalent, right? Because you've got to think that attracting the best and brightest tech companies should be pretty high up on almost any country's priority list, right? At least ones that have the infrastructure to attract and, and, and support them. What do you see in terms of changes? Like what, what, what do we see upcoming? Are things going to kind of stay the same? Are they looking to ramp up? Might they be changing anything on the regulatory side? And then I'll probably have some questions about the shady behavior that, that I've been hearing about, at least, because that's part of why we have this show, right? Is, you know, we can kind of dig deeper and, and educate people on what's actually happening in some cases on the ground level. But any talks from IRCC or, you know, any, there, there's obviously a lot of players when it comes to SUV because you have all these designated entities and you have, you know, maybe the economic you know, innovation governments at the municipal or, or I guess probably provincial levels. I, I don't know. But wh what are you hearing or thinking might be coming down the pipeline for SUV? Right now, when it comes to changes that are upcoming for 2024, we are hoping that the open work permit will take place this year. We don't know yet when and if it's officially going to happen. During the collision event as well, Mr. Fraser announced that he wanted potentially to do that change for individuals, for all group members under the Startup Visa program to apply for can, the Open Can you explain that? Three years. Because right now, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, you can apply for a closed work permit, right? Which means because right now, I think the processing times to get PR through the startup visa is very long, right? I think largely caused by COVID. But in the meantime, you've been allowed to apply for a closed work permit, which means you can work for your own tech company and your tech company only. So it, one of the proposed changes is what? That they can apply for an open work permit, which means they can work for any company? 
All right. So the current regulation allows individuals that already apply for permanent residency under the startup visa program to be eligible to apply for, like you mentioned, a closed work permit for a one year duration and only for essential members. So it means that not all hmm. group members can apply for the work permit. And that would be the changes actually that would potentially be happening under the SUV is that all team members that are essential or non-essential would be able to apply for an open work permit for a duration of three years. And and why an open work permit? Like the first the first thing that pops into my head is if you're coming to Canada to work on a tech startup, shouldn't you, especially as somebody who's been working on a tech startup, shouldn't you just be working on your own tech startup? That's a good question. So when it comes to the reality of a lot of foreign nationals that are coming into Canada is that they are, yes, establishing their own startup business here, but they might not have the financial stability within that business yet to sustain their long-term stay in Canada with their families. So we do see that they have the financial capacity, of course, to establish that business because they need to demonstrate that. They have the financial capacity to come here, but it will help them get, I would say, a bit more comfortable on the financial side to have the possibility to work, yes, on their business, but to also work for someone else at the same time to help them in gaining that financial component. Yeah. Mm. That that part was kind of surprising to me because especially if, if you need a company with traction and you need a company that either has raised a minimum of 75K, right, from if you're going the angel route, 200K if you're going the venture route, or you have enough money to afford the 30 to 50K in fees, and you you need enough money to meet the proof of funds requirement, right? Through through the PR application element, then I mean, I guess that's a lot of money. So maybe you don't have much money left over. But but my I was surprised when I kind of heard that idea. Cause I was like, don't don't we want these founders really focused on on building those startups? And I guess my concern is maybe I've been affected by all the other, you know, fraud and shady stuff that I see in immigration in general is that people are going to use the startup visa as a Trojan horse to get into Canada. You get a three-year open work permit and you can do whatever the heck you want. You can just go get a full-time job at another company and do nothing with your startup, right? And maybe you're even willing to sacrifice the PR application because you get enough Canadian skilled work experience and then you just go apply through express entry, which is probably faster than the startup visa anyways, right? So that, that was my thought when I heard about the open work permit. I think the fact that the closed work permit is only a year is pretty stupid, but maybe they had that by design when the startup visa didn't take two, three years to process, right? So the one-year permit wasn't that big of a deal. But what do you think? Like, am I crazy to think that? Is is the open, do you think that the open work permit is is so important based on how you're seeing things play out with real clients? So I think it could be kind of divided in several components. So the open work permits is allowing them to have that additional options, right? It's out there if they do need, because they are, most of them will have the financial, of course, capacity to, to live in Canada in the long term without actually being able to get that salary. 
but there's still a, a certain amount of individuals that are entrepreneurs that are focusing on their business that might not be gaining a lot of money from their business. And most of them want to keep the money right in the business to being able to grow over time. So they won't get really a salary from it. So it gives them that alternative that if they need to have additional funding and to sustain to anything that happens through their living costs here in Canada, they'll have that options to gain uh, an additional job or also to open another business. Because I have clients that are hmm. entrepreneurs in, in, in their spirits and that they already have something ongoing. It, they're focusing on their business, but they would like to open another one while they are here in Canada. So on an open work permit, they'll have that possibility. So that actually means helping more and more the economy in Canada in this case. And to mm. come back to your to your questions regarding just being an open work permit and don't do anything under the business, it would be very hard because while they are here waiting for their permanent residency to be approved, they need to show ongoing activities and traction within the business to the RFCC and they do are they're very meticulous when it comes to the ongoing activity and the genuity to be actually sustaining the business and how they are doing it they need to do it through business report to the RFCC and we do I would say at this time we do business report every three to six months as proactive component through the project to, to demonstrate to the government that everything is aligning as it was initially with the business plan or if there's anything that has changed why it has changed so it would be hard for someone to just not do anything for three years and being accepted under the program but but what about the case where you just kind of you come to you land in canada you maintain, right? You work like three hours a day on your startup just to kind of maintain the revenue that you've kind of committed to or whatever. Or you say, oh, sorry, we're falling on tough times. Our revenue's flat. It's still going, right? You're just like not really working on the business. And uh, you go get a full-time job at another company. And a year or two goes by and you string the government along for a little bit. And then you just like cancel your P you just cancel your SUV application. You submit a you submit a profile in the in the express entry pool. Like is that not a I guess that's I guess it's not the end of the world. I've certainly heard and seen far worse, which I, I, I want to ask you about in just a, a second here. But it, it certainly doesn't really go to like the ethos of, of the program, right? Not at all. Not at all, because it, it would not be showing your, your genuine side of actually establishing successfully that business in Canada. If these people are able to obtain or use the structure of the program in a different way that it was supposed to be meant to initially, it, those would be very rare cases. Clients mm -hmm. of mine that are coming in under the SUV are very genuine in having that business work and they will do everything with the hours needed to make that business successful. And when they're here under work permits, they will go do meetings across Canada. They will go meet partners. They will try to do anything in their power to make sure that that business will work. And it's for them also because they're investing in coming into a new country. They right. have put a certain amount of funds initially to go through that process. So they want to make sure that they're doing it for the right reason. Right. I, 
I guess my concern is with clients that aren't yours, right? Because, I mean, there's a reason why you're on the Canadian Immigration Pros podcast, right? Which is where we bring on legitimate, regulated, reputable Canadian immigration professionals. And we have helpful conversations like this. And the reason why I like to do that is because, you know, and, and I do do some vetting ahead of time, you know, making sure I have a personal connection or it's a Visto client or both or, or other. Or, you know, for example, some of our guests I've been communicating with on LinkedIn for months or maybe years. But I've heard some stuff about the Startup Visa program that I wanted to ask you about. Because as I was saying, I have no doubt that you work with genuine great clients and you do good work and you're, you know, submitting applications that are legitimate and are for the better of our society. But just a few things that I've heard, and, and maybe you can fact check this or say if you've heard them before, if you see them as well, is a couple things. Number one is some immigration providers, regulated and unregulated, will basically like sell tickets to a startup, right? As you mentioned at the beginning, with one startup application, you can include up to five founders. So what I've heard, and I've heard of reputable, quote unquote, reputable law firms run by lawyers, run by consultants, run by a combination. Well, where they'll go find one or two legitimate tech founders, and then they'll go sell the additional seats to that startup, right? So you'll go find two, three legitimate co-founders, and then you'll be like, okay, well, you know, I can charge these three founders, however many tens of thousands of dollars to do their legal work. But what about the empty two seats? Let's go find two other rich people around the world willing to write a big check, usually to the law firm, to join in on that application, right? To become, quote unquote, I'm, go I'm quoting for those who are watching on YouTube, if you're listening on the podcast, I'm putting up the bunny ears here, to quote unquote, become a founder of that company because it's a pathway to PR. So that's number one, right? Like shady immigration providers regulated and not, basically selling seats into the startup. Number two is some of the designated entities, which have been, you know, on, on, the, on the business incubator side, basically selling the letter of support, right? Oh, we're an entity. Sure, pay us 50K and we're going to put you through a quote unquote again program and give you a letter of support so you can apply for the startup visa. And some of the, this one really surprised me, some of the angel groups or venture funds basically saying, hey, you write a check to our fund and we'll write a check back to your startup with a letter of support, right? Because for example, if you want to get a letter from an angel group, you need a check of at least 75K from them. So what happens? You get one of those rich people to write a check to the angel group for 100K. And in return, the angel group invests, quote unquote, 75K in your startup with a letter of support so that you can apply for the startup visa. These are just some of the things that I've kind of heard. I haven't seen them in action because I don't work with those types of people. But are, are those things happening? Do you see them? Do you hear about them? Am I crazy? I mean, this, Maybe don't answer the last I, question. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I heard all of them. I, I, the last one I see the, the angels, I, I never heard about the, this one, but I heard about people doing matching with wealthy individuals to have a group formed with the five individuals. It, there has been a lot of things going on under the SUV during the COVID during COVID time because it was the only alternative for people 
to apply for permanent residency in Canada. So a lot of immigration professionals that are regulated are not. Cold Consultant has kind of sold that program as a golden ticket for people to come to Canada and apply for PR, even though they did not meet the requirement and the core of the Startup Visa program. So I think the situation happened a lot in the last two years, but the RCC is becoming more and more strict when they review applications, applicants' profile, they do interviews, they will ask a lot of questions to them for their kind of, how do they know that, like, how do they know each of them through the group, how they met, how they started that business, why they're starting it in Canada. So it would be very easy and very quick for the RCC to know which candidate are genuine and which candidate are not. Hmm. That's good to hear. And I guess it's easy for me to come guns blazing, but anybody can technically apply if they want, right? Worst case, yeah. like you said, IRCC starts asking them questions, they weed them out and they say, sorry, you know, rejected. I would just yeah. feel bad for the applicants who may have been sold a dream and spent tens or hundreds of thousands, you know, like I've heard of some firms, some of them quite reputable. I was pretty surprised. And again, this is, you know, the water cooler talk. So, you know, and that's why I'm not mentioning any firms or names because I, I can't confirm it, is firms charging upwards of like two, 300K, right? They'll go to a wealthy individual in another country and say, hey, you want a Canadian passport? Here's a chance. I can't guarantee it, but you write us a check for two, 300K, we'll throw you in on this startup visa application and we'll see if it gets approved. And apparently people are paying, right? So my only concern is for the people who are spending lots of money and maybe, you know, because some professionals aren't that friendly, right? They might say, hey, you have a good chance, right? Hey, yeah, just pay me 50, 100, 200K. You have a good chance. Here's our quote unquote track record, blah, blah, blah. And then those people are might be surprised to learn that it gets rejected and they're in the hole for five or six figures, right? But it is good to hear. And the other thing I heard too is because of what was happening with some of those designated entities is that some designated entities are now having their letter of supports, basically all of the, almost all of them refused, right? Because IRCC has noticed, oh, hey, that designated entity is bringing in a whole bunch of crap, right? Like all the companies that are applying with letters of support from you, designated entity ABC Inc., I'm just going to call it that for now, they're all crap. So clearly you're not doing your work. You're clearly just doing something wrong, right? We don't really know what, but clearly the quality of companies and, and your vetting process is not good enough. So we're going to just basically refuse pretty much any company using a letter of support from your entity, which is probably a good thing. I mean, we're seeing it in the international student space right now, right? Around 2015, 2016, the industry started to explode and there was barely any regulation and, you know, numbers got inflated, scamming started to happen, people started taking advantage of the system. And now the pendulum swings back and they kind of over-regulate to try to, you know, fix the problem and, and, and hopefully it'll settle in like a comfy middle ground. Would yeah, you say you're kind of saying similar in with SUV right now? There's always bad 
players in any type of immigration programs. There's always people not doing it for the right reasons. And I think that's where I, I would advise clients to make sure that they do their due diligence first on the immigration professional that they will hire, on the business organization that they will be working with. So what is their success rate? What type of projects they've been involved with? How many clients have they given a letter of support since the program started? Is it a very huge number? Why is it a very huge number? So these type of questions need to be kind of asked to the immigration professional and to the DO to make sure that these intermediaries are doing the program for the right reason. So that would be my first advice. And of course, I think there was things that were done in the last couple of years through the SUV that were not done correct. But the government is aiming to kind of fix these situation by actually doing more and more due diligence with this organization and projects that are currently being reviewed and approved. So I think in, in some way it will happen less and less because the regulation will become more strict with these individuals. Right. That's great to hear. It, it sounds like they are taking steps in the right direction. So maybe to kind of close out the, the conversation, Melissa, this has been really interesting. I always knew the basics of SUV. I think back in the day, maybe did kind of one or two, but mostly just the immigration paperwork. So this has been a really good eye opener in terms of understanding a little bit more of what goes into the process. And especially a professional like you, who's spending most of her time on this, right? So you're, you're getting pretty deep on you know, which de designated entities are good, how to determine which one at which point, all that kind of stuff. So where's your head at in terms of the short and, and, and long-term future for SUV? Is, is this a really good option for aspiring immigrants right now? What about other professionals that might be listening to the show? Because I know, you know, a good amount of immigration professionals do. And one of the most common things I hear from them is, Oh, you know, I've I've never really tried the startup visa, but it's it sounds interesting and I'd kind of like to get more into the corporate side. What advice would you have? Obviously, you don't want to create too much competition, but there's plenty of business to go around, right? But, you know, what what advice would you give maybe to aspiring immigrants about the outlook of the program and maybe other immigration professionals that have thought about but never tried a startup visa? So that would be the program, the startup visa program is a very good program for aspiring entrepreneurs and also business owners that wish to come into Canada and that are meeting the criteria and above. Because what is listed on the government is a very, I would say, short list of what is really required to be successful under the program. And that's where they need to be guided with the right immigration professionals to make sure that they will be successful on both components to business and their immigration application. And when it comes to immigration professionals that wish to have more implications in the business immigration programs like the Startup Visa program, it's to actually being able to have someone that could guide them through the steps because it is not an easy program to get into. You need to have experience from A to Z to being able to assist a client successfully in the right way to make sure that it would be a smooth process for them. Because there's many components to be taking into consideration 
and it could be very overwhelming quickly, either for the immigration professional and also for the client. So you don't want that to to happen to either of these individuals. Right. It, it seems to me that it's, it maybe requires some of the most extensive evaluation because, you know, if you're going to apply for a work permit, okay, do you have a job offer? If you're going to apply to study, okay, can you get an LOA? If you're going to apply to sponsor someone, okay, can you establish the relationship? If you're going to apply through SUV, you got to do some in-depth business analysis, right? Do you have a startup? Does it have the right traction? Is it going to be a fit in this market? You're going to have to analyze which business, which designated entities to apply for, right? Do you need funding or do you have the money to fund it? Do you want to keep equity? Do you not want to keep equity? Which one should we apply for? What, you you know what I mean? And all that's right up front too, it sounds like. So a lot of upfront analysis, which, you know, makes a lot of sense in terms of wanting to work with someone who's experienced, knowledgeable, all that good stuff. So Melissa, this has been really great. I think a lot of people will get a lot of value from it. Whether an aspiring immigrant or an immigration professional, if they want to get in touch with you, learn more, maybe work with you, where do you recommend that they go to find out? I definitely follow my LinkedIn posts. I I do try to post as much as possible on the social media to being able to share current information about the startup visa, anything that relates to business immigration programs, any updates, anything that I can share from current experience that can help out other aspiring entrepreneurs also that wish to be joining the SUV or already in and maybe not getting the right support, feel free to reach out to me by LinkedIn or also by email. Awesome. And I'll include links to those as well as your website in the description, whether you're watching on YouTube or listening on the podcast. Melissa, thank you very much once again for coming on the show. We appreciate it. Thank you so much for the invitation, Josh. It was a pleasure.